Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. It's 2019. As WUSF prepares to bring you the news you rely on this year, we take a look back at some of the station's big moments in 2018. This is Florida Matters. From the studios of WUSF Public Media, I'm Robin Sessingham. WUSF is ready to bring you more compelling stories and informative news coverage in 2019. And as we start the new year, we're reflecting back on 2018 through the lens of Florida Matters. This WUSF Year in Review includes highlights from special reports and events that were featured in episodes of Florida Matters. And we remember the loss of our beloved colleague, Florida Matters and Morning Edition host, Carson Cooper. We start with a look at health care. Health News Florida editor Julio Ochoa was part of a special project for the University of Southern California Center for Health Journalism. He produced a series called Their Only Option about free clinics in the Tampa Bay area and how they help the uninsured. Florida Matters hosted a special town hall event in February that took a deeper dive into this issue. Now we'll hear a portion of that conversation with panelist Julio Ochoa, Dr. Ajoy Kumar, the medical director of the St. Petersburg Free Clinic, and Jay Wolfson, associate vice president of USF Health. We have the most expensive health care system in the world. We spend more money on pharmaceuticals, on hospitalizations, and the outcomes, for the most part, are worse than most industrialized and other non-industrialized countries in the world by a huge margin. Add to that real fraud and abuse. We have to make both providers and patients and their families responsible for that. And what makes people responsible, whether we like to say it or not, is money. We have to financially incentivize behaviors and financially disincentivize bad behaviors. And that rubs some people the wrong way, but we can no longer afford to provide the kind of care the way we've been doing it for the past 50 or 60 years. We're going to have to turn it upside down and on its head. Well, until that happens, <laughs> we have free clinics. Julio, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. You talked to doctors. Did they talk to you about why they were doing what they did? Just out of the goodness of their hearts. I mean, that's overwhelming what they said. Some started when they were in residency and just continued on. Some had, had retired and just wanted to get back into it. You all mentioned that there were fewer and fewer doctors willing to do this, which surprised me. Is litigation one reason or fear of litigation no, a reason no. for that? Dr. Kumar. There's a lot of medical students and residents that I've come across that go out and do medical missions. That's what I did as well, too. But once you start getting in the process of life, you tend to have kids, you take care of the job, other things start happening in which it makes it very difficult on the time that you have. We already talk about right now the amount of time physicians spend in clinics with prior authorizations. Most of you, when you go to your doctor's office, they have a computer there. They're busy looking at their computer, barely looking at you, and they're just trying to cram through the day to get stuff done. But on average, they have at least three to four hours of more computer work to do when they get home. If we were able to free up a lot of these physicians from the administrative burdens that they have, 
they would have more time to do these. And I would tell you, a lot of family docs, a lot of primary care docs, a lot of subspecialty docs would love to do this. It's just a matter of time. Back in April, we did a show on the Florida Wildlife Corridor's latest expedition. A team of explorers trek through an area of wilderness in central Florida that's threatened on all sides by urban development and highways like I-4. WUSF Steve Newborn joined them, and he later produced a special report on the area known as Four Corners in collaboration with the Florida Center for Investigative Reporting. Looking from atop the ridge at U.S. Highway 27 as it follows the state's central spine, you can see brand new roofs rolling down the hills to Interstate 4. Downtown Orlando stands in the hazy distance beyond Epcot's iconic dome. This is Four Corners, where Orange, Osceola, Polk, and Lake Counties meet at the center of the state. Mike Tarico has lived in Four Corners since he first started working for Disney when it opened in 1971. It was basically palmettos and cow pastures and open area. Within the last 10 years, this whole place out here has just exploded. Fast forward 50 years and Four Corners has become one of Florida's traffic choke points for both humans and wildlife. The area sits not only astride the main thoroughfare between the Tampa Bay area and Orlando, but it's in the middle of one of the few remaining green corridors used by wildlife migrating between the Everglades and the Green Swamp. 1,000 Friends of Florida, a nonprofit environmental advocacy group, said by 2060 another 15 million people are expected to move here. Vivian Young is the group's communications director. Obviously, it's going to reduce the quality of life because you're talking about more sprawling development, spending more time in cars, having water crises, which some parts of the state already are having. Some environmentalists fear that migration pathways for wildlife could be cut off if local governments don't coordinate growth to protect the natural corridor. That's why the Florida Wildlife Corridor Expedition chose the Four Corners earlier this year to highlight the need to connect the remaining wild spaces before they're lost forever to development. Expedition founder and wildlife photographer Carlton Ward Jr. of Tampa. It's going to be the anti-wildlife corridor if we don't put steps in place to protect it because Interstate 4 is becoming a dividing line that could cut the Everglades system off from the rest of our state and the rest of the country. Traffic congestion and rampant development has become so problematic here that civic and business leaders met on Halloween to start creating what they call a One Vision Plan. Longtime resident Terrico says this won't be the first plan. About 10 years ago, there was a regional planning committee who did a study of Four Corners, put together a couple of elements, uh, put them on paper, and they become dusty on a shelf. And for people like Young of 1,000 Friends of Florida, that's only a beginning. Growth can't be stopped, she said, only managed. Florida's economy depends on tourism, which in turn depends on Florida being a beautiful destination. At some point, is it going to reach a tipping point where people say the downside of all the congestion and sprawl is something that they don't want to deal with anymore? That's the question Four Corners and the rest of Florida will have to answer. I'm Steve Newborn in Tampa.
WUSF hosts an ongoing series called Art Populi that highlights art and culture in Tampa Bay. This year, it won a Florida Associated Press Broadcasters Award for our 2017 series on live local music. Our next Art Populi series focused on museums and galleries. Florida Matters producer Stephanie Colombini takes us on a tour of the area's glass art scene. It was about 90 degrees on a summer afternoon in downtown St. Petersburg. Step inside the steel cage that houses the Morian Art Center's hot shop and glass studio, and it's positively sweltering. Giant fans are cranked on high. Heat waves are coming from furnaces that burn at over 2,000 degrees. Artists Matthew Piepenbrock and Jeremiah Jacobs are dripping with sweat as they perform a demonstration in front of a handful of visitors. Nobody woke up and said, I want to be a glassblower in Florida, right? Because, man, it gets pretty hot. And yet, here they are. While Florida may not have the climate for glassblowing, it's become an ideal market for glass enthusiasts. Florida's Gulf Coast is packed with glass art. Sarasota has more than 200 collectors and two zip codes. The city's also home to the Bash Collection at Ringling College and the new Kotler Coville Glass Pavilion at the Ringling Museum. Here in St. Pete, you can find glass in the Warehouse Arts District at places like the Duncan McClellan Gallery. And along Central Avenue downtown, there's the Chihuly Collection. The collection, across the street from the hot shop, boasts icicle-like chandeliers and a garden of glass flowers and reeds. Executive Director Andy Slough says it was Chihuly who suggested they provide live demonstrations to accompany his art. When you're walking around the collection, you're seeing all of this work and wondering, how does he do this? How is it made? And by having the hot shop there, a part of the ticketed entry, people get a fuller picture. The latest arrival to the region's glass scene is the Imagine Museum. It features over 500 works by 55 artists in the American studio glass movement. Sometimes as you walk past matted sculptures that appear to be made of stone and globes filled with miniature flowers that almost look real, it's hard to remember that it's glass. Deputy Director Jane Buckman says the museum shows people glass art isn't just vases and bowls. There are many artists from around the world that are working in this medium and making beautiful expression. Back at the Morian Hot Shop, glassblower Matthew Piepenbrock says the medium's like a drug to those passionate about it. Glass is about as addictive as heroin and as expensive. <laughs> He says glasswork can sometimes sell for tens, even hundreds of thousands of dollars, which wealthy Tampa Bay and Sarasota residents are willing to pay to get their fix. The average Joe down the road can't just be like, I'm a big glass collector. Whereas with a medium like painting, where anyone can pick up a brush and take a stab at creativity, glass definitely has more of a don't-try-this-at-home feel. Jeremiah Jacobs says that's part of what makes the material so appealing. And just the way it's dripping off of the end of the rod and it's glowing, making its own light, that's really the star of the show over here. Thank you. Jacobs says most people who watch his demonstrations are less concerned about the final product and more about watching the color and shape of that molten glass come alive. For Florida Matters, I'm Stephanie Colombini. You're listening to Florida Matters. We're hosting a WUSF Year in Review, looking back on some of the stories we brought to you in 2018. I'm Robin Sussingham. We'll be right back. I'm Robin Sussingham, and you're listening to Florida Matters. We're revisiting some of WUSF's important moments from 2018, including special series that were featured on Florida Matters. 
WUSF participated in a special project funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting called Veterans Coming Home, which looks at how members of the military transition into civilian life. WUSF videographer Andy Lolino produced a series of videos on veteran business owners. Florida Matters hosted a screening of those videos in October that was followed by a discussion on veteran entrepreneurship. Now we hear panelist Russ Barnes, CEO of Cistro Consulting, talking about how military training can help a veteran start a business. I'm Air Force. Some of you say that's the not non-military military. And you would be right, because we do have more of a, of a corporate structure because it's the officers that go fly and fight. And so the enlisted corps helps to make sure that that mission happens. So I started out as a B-52 radar navigator. My first staff assignment was running fighter programs. Eventually transitioned into political military, none of which I had any background or experience in. While I was the chief of the policy division, the general calls me in and says, you're going to Saudi Arabia. You're going to be there until we find a general officer to replace you. So I had to figure out what had to be done while I was there and accomplish that mission. And when I got out there and I looked at the people who were there, I said, okay, I need some specialties here. Sounds like business. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when I, I called back to Central Command and I, mm-hmm. said, I said, I need three people who can function and operate in an ambiguous environment with little or no direction because I was going to have no idea what they were accomplishing. I just knew the finance expert was going to have to fix the finance problems. The personnel person was going to have to fix the personnel problems. And the legal person was going to have to keep us out of jail. So, (laughs) but that's what business is really all about. So I had very good entrepreneurial experiences. And when I left the military, I said, I think I can do this. I think I can be an entrepreneur. And risk-taking, I guess, because you kind of got put out there feet first and had to figure it out, I guess. Risk is really a function of uncertainty, and it's a function of not being prepared. While we were not prepared to actually take on that (laughs) challenge, we were prepared to do whatever it took to make it happen. That's the power of our training is it doesn't matter how difficult the problem is, we set out figuring out how to make it happen. Since 2016, WUSF has been teaming up with student journalists at the University of South Florida to highlight different areas in our region. It's a special series called Telling Tampa Bay Stories. This year, it won a Griot Drum Award from the Tampa Bay Association of Black Journalists for our 2017 series on Tampa's Progress Village. And this fall, we brought you another edition of the series, this time focusing on Plant City. We heard residents tell stories about some of the things the Hillsborough community is best known for, like its agricultural landscape and its annual Strawberry Festival. But we also looked at other things that make Plant City special, like the Bing Rooming House. It's a national historic site that was once a hotel for people of color during segregation. Plant City resident William Thomas Jr. tells us about it. My name is William Thomas Jr. Uh, Originally, I was born in Plant City. Uh, My father, William Thomas Sr., served in the military, so uh, I spent a lot of my time traveling the world and then came back home after uh, going to college. Coming back home... I was uh, voluntold to serve as president of the Improvement League of Plant City about four years ago, and that is a nonprofit that my father actually served as president on when he came back home. Uh, and one of the Improvement League of Plant City's uh, signature projects is the Bing Rooming House uh, African American Museum. 
That is a two-story structure here within the city limits. It served as a hotel for uh, blacks during the era of segregation. Um, it was owned by Miss Janie L. Bing and her husband, E.L. Bing Sr. It was one of the more successful and notable businesses during that time, uh, anchoring a, a black historic district in that area. So uh, one of the grandchildren deeded the house to the organization, and we took on that project to restore into a museum. We always try to uh, confirm, obviously, who stayed there. Muddy Waters was an often a frequent guest there. He was, uh, of course, notable in the jazz arena, musician. Um, we do have uh, those who said that James Brown stayed there. A lot of oral history accounts of that. Negro League baseball players was a major tenant of that location. Uh, we confirmed that through Major League Baseball a number of years ago, where their historians came in the town and, and affirmed that. Satchel Page stayed there when he was playing with the Homestead Grays and, and traveling between uh, the Florida circuit. And ironically, a number of school teachers we found out, being that it was a rooming house during the era of segregation, transportation was limited. There was a Marshall High School in Plant City at that time. There were a number of teachers that were recruited from Tampa that would come and stay at the rooming house and teach at the school and then commute back home on the weekends. Again, growing up in the military, uh, and coming back home, and I, I've been very un unapologetic about that, it was a sticker shock coming back home. Um, in the late 1990s, there was an aura of uh, still a racial division. Um, but I've been fortunate to see that change as the leaders in the community have changed and leaders in the city have changed. One of the things you can tout about is the Bing Rooming House being uh, funded by the city. Uh, they invested a number of dollars into restoring that structure I remember when we first took on that project and presented it to the city, there was a poll that was conducted through the uh, Plant City Courier, and that poll uh, reached out citywide, and there was a 80% turnout that they felt the Bing House was not a good idea. Now, moving forward, you know, 16, 17 years later, the Bing House is well attended by people from various diversities throughout the city of Plant City. So it just goes to show you that the mentality and the culture has indeed changed. We can attest that, you know, uh, at least 50% of the support that we have for the rooming house is from non-African Americans. So I think that's a good testament to show how I've, I've personally witnessed, even in this late era, the change of how people have accepted and embraced that, that piece of history and in an effort to make sure we all come together. Most recently, you may have heard WUSF's special week-long report, Growing Unaffordable. WUSF reporters Kathy Carter, Roberto Roldan, and Stephanie Colombini spent months talking with housing experts and struggling renters to paint a picture of America's housing crunch here in Hillsborough County. Florida Matters then looked at alternative housing and how that may affect the affordability crisis. The final piece in the series reported on potential solutions to the housing problem. Let's take a listen. Back in October, hundreds of Hillsborough County residents packed the pews of Tampa's first Seventh-day Adventist Church. All members of the Hillsborough Organization for Progress and Equality, or HOPE. For the last 30 years, the group has lobbied county government on issues from criminal justice reform to senior care. Longtime member Gretchen Del Savio told those gathered that they finally got a win on an issue they've been working on for five years, affordable housing. The county approved $5.125 million for affordable housing for the 2019 county budget and an additional $1.6 million 
for 2020. Amen. Even though the audience cheered for the $5 million, it wasn't what they were hoping for. At nearly every county commission meeting this year, members from HOPE have asked for the creation of an affordable housing trust fund of $10 million each year. They say that money could help build new affordable housing. Going forward, HOPE plans to serve as a watchdog over the $5 million and to keep lobbying for the trust fund. Their chances could be better in the coming year. That's because two newly elected commissioners openly supported their efforts. Here's then-candidate Mary Ella Smith at that October meeting outlining a way to use developer fees. We would only charge developers the same amount that they are charged in other counties for their development fees. We could use part of that money for affordable housing. The new Hillsborough County Commission will start discussing proposals in January. State lawmakers will also have an opportunity to address affordable housing when the new legislative session begins in March. Jamie Ross, CEO of the Florida Housing Coalition, says a lot has changed since she first began lobbying legislators. She says she used to have to explain why affordable housing was important. Now, I can't go anywhere where folks don't already know that this is a really important issue. During the recent campaign season, each of the candidates for governor said they supported using all of the state's affordable housing trust funds, known as the Sadowski Act for Housing. For the past 15 years, billions of dollars have been diverted for other purposes. Only Andrew Gillum said he would veto any attempt to sweep money from the state's housing funds. Even so, Jamie Ross says she is optimistic about what Governor-elect Ron DeSantis will do on affordable housing. Because he has an opportunity now to distinguish himself as a person who is going to bring the program back to being the way it used to be. Florida's incoming Republican Senate Majority Leader Kathleen Pasadomo has filed a bill which aims to protect the Sadowski Trust Fund. Jamie Ross says if all the money is set aside as intended this coming year, it could at least put a dent in solving Florida's affordable housing problem. Right now, that money is estimated to be $328.2 million. If fully appropriated, Ross says that would mean 12,000 affordable housing units could be constructed in Florida. And that's just in one year. At the federal level, cuts in funding have essentially turned public housing programs into lottery systems. Only one in four applicants ever get housing. Diane Yentel leads the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. She says experts have plenty of data on how to fix the housing problem. What we lack is the political will to fund those solutions at the scale necessary. She says several members of Congress on both sides of the aisle are starting to pay attention. And they're responding with some really bold proposals, the likes of which we haven't seen in decades. Those ideas include investing more money in the National Housing Trust Fund, creating tax credits for renters, and incentivizing housing agencies to help residents move out of areas with a lot of poverty. Yentel says these efforts would cost billions of dollars to implement. She says it's encouraging to see some lawmakers understand that kind of investment's worth it. But until a majority get on board, these bills will go nowhere. It can be easy for some to say, well, I can afford my house, not my problem. But Yentel says that's not the case. Housing instability causes significant negative impacts, which one way or another, families, communities, and the country are paying for through increasing costs in other sectors. 
Yentel says all you have to do is look at cities on the West Coast, like San Francisco, to see how housing inaction has led to a dramatic rise in homelessness. She says Hillsborough County and the rest of the nation could meet the same fate unless changes are made now. I'm Stephanie Colombini. I'm Kathy Carter. And I'm Roberta Roldan, WUSF 89.7 News. WUSF also suffered a tremendous loss last year. Carson Cooper, WUSF's longtime host of Morning Edition and Florida Matters, passed away on July 28th after 18 years with us. He was 58. Florida Matters paid tribute to Carson in a special show that featured highlights from his career and memories from colleagues. Good morning. It's 6.06. I'm Carson Cooper. This is WUSF 89.7 News. When you tuned in to Morning Edition at 6 or 7 a.m., you may not have realized that Carson had been there for hours. But Carson did not seem to mind his crazy work hours, as he told a guest once on Florida Matters. Hey, you know what I have? I, I, I get to work at 3 in the morning. I eat dry cereal on my drive-in and then about four cups of coffee. <laughs> so I'm ready to uh, kick back here. All right, here we go. Craig George was there with him in the wee hours of the morning for many of those years. Craig would run the soundboard while Carson was on the air. He was there to witness the many times that Carson was cool-headed when things didn't go exactly as planned. He was in many ways like a Tom Brady behind the mic. He was, though. He, he was good because if you made a mistake, his even-handed professionalism would, like, correct it for you. He would make you sound good. I started working with Carson when I was 22, and I came down from Minnesota, and uh, we both drove in from the same side of the bay. You know, we both lived in Pinellas County, and especially those first couple of years when you live in a place like this, I mean, I came from a town of one stoplight, <laughs> and I moved here. There were times when I would have to call him, and I'm like, hey, Carson, like, I have no idea where I am. And, of course, you, you know, he throws the phone on his shoulder, gets on you know, the keyboard, starts typing away. And he's like a 911 first responder, you know, on the phone. He's like, okay, tell me where you're at right now. What's the cross street? Okay, I know what you're doing. All right, here's where you got to go. Got a whippy I mean, he was really good. And, of course, never any panic in his voice whatsoever. And, uh, you know, not to sound cheesy or anything, but he would guide me home here, <laughs> so to speak. Carson was known for being unflappable and even-keeled. Even when live events took a turn no one was expecting, reporters could always count on Carson to remain calm and ask all the right questions, like the time Bobby O'Brien was reporting on a bridge closure in Tampa. There's a gentleman who's trying to uh, go in the wrong way on Bayshore, so I think the officer needs to redirect him. All right, a little bit of confusion sure. there on this uh, first morning of this closure, but uh, overall, how has the uh, traffic been? Is it Has it been worse than, uh, or has it been as expected? Actually, I think it's been lighter than expected. The only confusion is one driver who uh, apparently is lost. He's new to the city. He Bobby O'Brien has worked with Carson since the day he arrived. He pushed me as a reporter to be a better radio person. I could also count on Carson. He would never embarrass me on air. He would never ask me a question that I couldn't come up with an answer. If I couldn't, he would cover for me. But more importantly, he brought out the humanism in a story just with his questions. 
He also had such a sense of humor and wit, and he never let me take it too seriously. He'd always say, you know, it's just radio after all. Thank you, Carson, for that. Thank you. And thanks to all of you who tuned in during 2018 and shared your support with WUSF. In the coming months, Florida Matters will bring you more special coverage of the news and events that matter. And Florida Matters is now available as a podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or you can click on the podcast tab at WUSF.org. You'll find all the shows we featured in this episode on WUSFnews.org. Just click on the Florida Matters tab. Our show is produced by Stephanie Colombini and is a production of WUSF Public Media. I'm Robin Sussingham. Thanks for listening.